at Sif Pop. We're your movie friends. But are friends really friends? If you don't know them. So grab a popcorn. And head over to our row. So we can chat movies. Like friends do. There's always room. For more movie friends. So sit back. Relax. And enjoy the show. Welcome. 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 To the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. My name is not Aaron, it's in fact Robert. I'm one of the editors at SifPop.com, and today I'm joined by SifPop.com writers Sam. Salutations. And Caleb. What's up? Caleb, I have to bring this up because frankly, I think you're lucky to be back on recording with me. Um, I don't know if you remember what you said last time, and Sam, you'll appreciate this. Uh, just days after the end of the Eastern Conference Finals, Caleb was referencing Caleb Martin and Gabe Vincent right to my face. So uh, I didn't appreciate it. It was tasteless and rude, but I like you enough to bring you back on. I appreciate it. If you, if uh, I have like, I started, I literally have a notes in my phone called the Caleb Martin category. And it's like actors that I think are like, you know, good character actors, like actors that will show up in like every movie for like 15 minutes and just kill it and then disappear again. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah that that's like and you know Succession we were talking about it Succession's filled with those guys there's like one right. of them in like every episode so uh but yeah I did not mean to rub salt in the wound last time <laughs> hey, it's okay yeah, yeah. at least you're not a Mavericks fan talking to me <laughs> I'm still crying about that inside uh, I just had to bring that up because that still hurts months later anyway we're here today to talk about some of the biggest movie releases of November 2023. We'll be talking about The Holdovers, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, The Killer, The Marvels, Napoleon, Next Goal Wins, Priscilla, and Saltburn, and a couple of wild cards at the end. Time codes are in the episode description if you only want to hear us talk about certain movies. And I'm not going to say that we will or won't be talking about spoilers because I had to contradict myself last time. So I doubt we will, but if we end up dude talking about spoilers, there will be a warning beforehand. And lastly, we'll be rating each of these movies on the classic sip pop scale of like it, love it, dislike it, hate it, or it was just okay. So with that, let's get into these movies. Let's start alphabetically with The Holdovers. Caleb, what did you think of this one? I love this one. I like, I don't know. This one kind of caught me by surprise. I mean, I'm a Paul Giamatti fan, don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, Alexander Payne hadn't made a movie in a while and, uh, he was back with a vengeance, man. He's back. Uh, yeah, I really loved this one. And his previous one was downsizing. Uh, Sam, what did you think of Holdovers? I'm also in the loved it camp. That that movie's going to be an all-time Christmas classic, I think, in a year or two. It's very good. Paul Giamatti is on one. I'm very excited for this movie to show its legs and hopefully become something that you can rewatch year after year. Um. I agree. I think I'm going to be right with you guys and say loved it. Uh, like you said, it's a already a Christmas classic. I watched it before Thanksgiving, but was still feeling festive and ready to, you know, spread Christmas cheer. Uh, I wasn't expecting that going in, but it works really well. Um, you're right. He's <laughs> Paul Giamatti is on one. I guess you could say he he's uh, Caleb Martin if he took over the Eastern Conference Finals for seven games. Um <laughs> Let's get into it. What exactly did you guys like about it? What were some of the biggest immediate standouts for you? Well, Paul Giamatti just carries the movie in every way. He's a terrific, almost Grinch-like figure at the start where we get this professor, this tenured professor at a 
uh, prestigious boarding school who just kind of fits the stereotypical nature of what you would think a professor there would be like who's put up with snotty rich kids for years reminded me a lot of uh, the professor that spoiler for later when we talk about a ballad of songbergs and sticks that david sutherland mm-hmm. played in uh, animal house he has that look too you could definitely tell how the hair what the hairstylist was thinking of when they was putting him in the seat so i he has that great start to the movie as a grinchy character the kids grow on him especially the one kid who we'll probably talk more about. And it's just the human performances throughout the whole thing. I really appreciated seeing that side of all the actors and actresses in the production. Yeah. Uh, one thing like uh, that always sticks out to me about Alexander Payne movies that I think he's really good at. And Sam just kind of touched on it was there's just like a lot of like humanness to it. And I mean, that as like a compliment. There's like, mm-hmm. Like it's genuine. It feels genuine. Like something he's so gifted at that, like allowing the actors to be human. The characters feel like fully realized, like, you know, you see like different aspects of people that, you know, in a lot of these characters. And there's just like a genuineness that kind of overflowing through the whole movie. But um, yeah, I really responded to and I really loved. Just to piggyback on your your guys's Alexander Payne point, um, his characters can be, you know, zany and heightened but somehow he still always manages to get to that human heart at the center of it uh you know in fairly mundane situations of someone running for class president or you know just these these kids over christmas break or matt damon downsizing uh he always manages to get to the heart of things and i really appreciate that i there's something special about when you can make something that's so funny. Cause I really think the holdovers is, is very funny uh, in a large part. Thanks to Paul Giamatti's performance, just almost every one of his expressions just had me cracking up. <laughs> but when you have something so out there and, and silly, you know, on the surface, but still get to the heart of those emotions, you know, the, those closing scenes really hit um, that that's some real good skill. Indeed. Yeah. And like, I don't, yeah, it's just like, there's just not many movies like that are like that. And there haven't been a lot this year, in my opinion, that just like feel that vulnerable with like the characters. And um, it just feels like everybody in that movie kind of brought it, especially the three, the three main leads. I mean, they're all each one equally amazing in it. Um, and yeah, it was just really impressive. Dominic Sessa is a, he got an introducing credit. Like mm-hmm. this, this guy came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's just great holding his own against Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph, who, like you said, are both great. That was his first role. Yeah. I didn't know yeah. that. That's wow. That's impressive. I would not have picked that. They've got to give him props. Cause I really thought with a younger actor like that, especially if this is their first real role, now that I know that it can be really tough going up against an all timer like Giamatti. So now it's grown in my estimation even more. On IMDb, literally his only credit for anything is actor in the holdovers. It's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. I mean, that is definitely somebody to watch. And uh, Divine Joy Randolph, I think, in my opinion, is probably at this point one of the favorites for the Oscar for supporting actress, at least in my estimation. I mean, she, I think she was the, the best performance of the movie. Paul Giamatti is obviously amazing, but I thought her, I mean, she's been great in comedic roles, but it was really impressive to see her kind of get the 
show her dramatic acting. Um, yeah, that was so cool to get to see her do that. She's been like, a, she was kind of in the Caleb Martin category um, in a couple <laughs> other roles before this movie. Too, if I, uh, I hate to keep bringing it back, but um, so that was nice to now. see her in like an expanded role. Uh, I thought she was really great. She's been in a lot of stuff this year. She did Puss in Boots at the end of last year, which I count as a 2023 movie because I didn't see it until this year, even though I know it's not. Uh, she did The Idol, which is all-time terrible, but all-time great watching experience. And then she was in Rustin and this, and then Only Murders in the Building. That, that's a pretty good year. And if she gets an Oscar nom, cherry on top. Yeah, Giamatti is definitely like the showier performance because he's doing the whole thing with the lazy eye and the whole, you know, Grinch persona, like you put it. But she's got that deep hurt underneath and um, really drives home the theme of, you know, people are more than what they appear to be on the surface. She can, She's more than just like the, you know, off-putting lunch lady at the school and uh, Angus is more than just a moody teen. So I, I like that ultimate lesson and I like, the way that both of those, I guess they're all three leads in a way. I guess you would say Giamatti's the lead, but the other two are, I, I don't know the actual screen time, you know, ratio, but I wouldn't put them too far behind. But yeah, all three of them are really great. Yeah, my mom was talking about, hey, Sam, can you take me to see Napoleon? Which I know we'll see next. And I was like, I want you to see this. Please come with me to see this instead. So mom, please come see this with me. Oh, she, you still haven't gotten her to come along yet? No, but she, she likes it when I – everybody in my family likes it if I reference them. So, Mom, please come see the holdovers with me. <laughs> now she's now she has to because you, you called her out. No, she's still going to want to see Napoleon. <laughs> it's okay, though. All right, let's move on then to The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Coriolanus Snow mentors and develops feelings for the female District 12 tribute during the 10th Hunger Games, uh, directed by Francis Lawrence, who directed the last three of the original Hunger Games movies, starring Rachel Zegler, Tom Blythe, Viola Davis, Peter Dinklage, Jason Schwartzman. Uh, Sam, what did you think of this one? I want to give it a loved it. I did love the experience. I would not say the movie is as good as another loved it, so I'm going to say liked it. A very, very strong liked it overall i think i'm a little bit lower than you and we'll get into this because i I have a lot to say about this movie those first two parts there are like three designated parts in the movie i loved those first two parts uh really didn't like the third one so that's probably why i'm ultimately in like it Uh, that's a fair that's a fair point yeah yeah i'm in liked it as well in my opinion it's better than the two Mockingjay movies, but it's it's not quite to the, the par of the first two Hunger Games movies, in my opinion, if we're putting it in total context with the series. Sure. Yeah, I would probably agree with that, though I haven't seen the other four enough to you know remember it very much. But what I do like the most about the Hunger Games movies is like the actual Hunger Games. So the Mockingjay ones just being about the revolution and you know the YA story just kind of is whatever to me. So to see more of the actual hunger games in this one was appealing to me. And then to see the inner workings of it, of like uh, the people in the Capitol, you know, uh, all their machinations and why they're doing this and uh, the descent from within and all that. I thought that was a lot more interesting than 
basically anything that was done in the other four Hunger Games movies. So I wanted to see a lot more of that. Uh, and it works really well in those, again, first two parts. So that, that was my biggest positive for the movie, that the Hunger Games themselves are really tense and exciting. Um, and there's actually more going on beneath the surface, but ultimately kind of falls flat. Yeah, I really do enjoy seeing this new style Hunger Games. I mean, it's not new because technically speaking, right. the first two movies are the like more modern Hunger Games, so to speak. But I've likened it to watching like highlights from 1950s basketball. It's like the game was the same. You still had to put the ball in the basket, but it's completely different. You might as well be watching something else because it's not like they're putting some wild, bizarre arena. They're dumped into a coliseum and they've given some weapons and they're told kill each other. And that's the fundamentals of the game. But it's different because you, there's a whole new experience because they've the capital people realize this game is losing popularity. And for this punishment to actually stick for these rebels, we need to make sure that people keep watching or otherwise it's not worth anything for us. It's not worth the trouble. And I appreciated seeing the the strain through from the original games because my favorite of this franchise is the first one. And I think it's a little bit of a hot take because a lot of people like catching fire. I agree. I fully agree. The first one's yes. the best one. Thank you. I knew we were going to be friends, Caleb. But it's – I like that it, the first one was just kind of raw and this one's had that same feeling with the fighting. Yeah. It had that same feeling of it's just kill or be killed. There's no – there is some pageantry to this and that's part of the inventiveness and showing how they got there is an intriguing thing. It's like learning how a professional boxing match or professional uh, sport like baseball got to be where it is with like seventh inning stretch or the national anthem singing at the beginning or like the t-shirt cannon stuff to keep people and fans entertained. I, I, there would not be any t-shirt cannons for the hunger games, but it's interesting to see. <laughs> the cannons. Yeah. Oh, it has cannons. <laughs> yes. So I appreciated that. The only thing that let me down was there was no Jennifer Lawrence cameo as like Katniss's great grandma, but they couldn't have done that anyway. Her early twin. So what you're saying is like, it's like 70s and 80s basketball. They needed the ratings to come back up and yeah. they needed to reinvigorate it. Yeah, exactly. I do have to shout out Jason, J- Jason, Jason Schwartzman. 100%. Yes. I think he is uh, incredible in this movie. As somebody who works with meteorologists every day, I was eating <laughs> up like his character, like doing the weather on the side of the Hunger Games. It's so funny. Um, no, I really like this one. Uh, it does kind of struggle with the same things that the the other movies struggle with. And Robert, you kind of touched on it. Is just the fact that. Everything happening outside of the Hunger Games is just significantly less interesting than, than what's going on in the yeah. in the arena for the most part. Uh, I did like in this one the early on look at the Capitol and like some of the more behind the scenes look at the games and the people that run it. I thought that was an interesting um, aspect that they added to it. But no, it definitely does kind of lose a beat. And the the thing is, the first two parts of this flow so well. And then the third part really does feel kind of just stuck on the end of it. And I, yeah. I don't exactly know like what they could have done to make that flow better. Um, but yeah, I kind of agree. The third part is definitely the weakest. 
Um, I mean, obviously we get to hear Rachel Zegler sing some more, so that's always a positive, but um, it definitely was kind of the weakest part of the, of the movie did kind of feel like it was not necessarily added on at the end, but it definitely felt like if the first two parts were written in the same, at the same time when the author was sitting down, the third part feels like they came back to it like way later and were like, Oh, I need to add this on to wrap it up or whatever. In a different mood. Yeah. Yeah. My theory is that, you know, the, the third hunger games book was split into two parts. I think this would have been better in two parts. Um, it's a two and a half plus hour movie, but you, I don't know any of these characters very well at all. Like I needed more from snow. Like it's, we, we talked about this before we started recording. It's not much of a spoiler to say that he's ultimately President Snow, you know, the evil fascist dictator in the earlier Hunger, Game, Hunger Games movies. So to see him flip that switch from good to evil really only felt like flipping a switch and not, you know, a gradual change or there weren't any hints of why that uh, switch should be flipped. I None of that worked for me. Um, and all that stuff is just illuminated once you're into that third part and it's trying to focus on character more instead of, you know, the intensity of the Hunger Games and the, uh, you know, feeling bad for the District 12, the Lucy Gray character in the zoo cage and all that kind of stuff. Um, once it really tries to become a character piece is when I think, like I said, it ultimately completely falls apart for me. Yeah, I, I get the... I know I'm a little higher on this one than you guys. I get the, like, this is this is clearly a second part to the story. It's just yeah. an elongated epilogue. I think Suzanne Collins, the original author, kind of shot herself in the foot with this because I think there was room for, you just end it with Lucy Gray getting out. Maybe there's some conspiracy about Snow helping her win the games and sneaking in the poison. Spoiler alert, but, you know, this book has been out for two years. <laughs> this movie is only has been out for almost a month now. So and there's an hour left after that part. Yeah. So <laughs> there's I think there's some wiggle room where she could have ended it after the games they and uh, Snow gives a big push for her to get the money prize because that wasn't really included at the end of the book or the story about a Victor getting like an allotted winnings for the rest of their life. That wasn't at this point in the games yet. So he could have created it right then and there and then you write another book and now lucy is like starting to become more of a rebel figure but her and snow have this connection and he's in school but he's still a game maker or something and i think she elongated it too much when this could have been the seeds for a second story in this franchise or a fifth story or a sixth movie i don't know whatever many of these there are left it's like harry potter i don't know anymore (laughs) Are they making more? Is there another book? I don't think so, right? I don't think there's another book. There's that play that they wrote, and then there's... Aren't they making like an HBO series now or something? No idea. I I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I'm not sure. The other thing about the third act, to me, was like the pacing was a lot worse, too. Yeah. The first two acts of that movie is probably the first hour and a half of it. It feels like 40 minutes. It flies by in a good way. And then the last act of this movie feels like the next two hours of the movie. Like it it felt like you spend so much more time with that. And that wouldn't be a bad thing if like kind of what Robert said, if it was like felt like more of a descent for president for snow, 
you know, into the person he becomes as president Snow. Like if it felt more right, of like right, a gradual right. descent, but it was really a switch. And then you're just kind of left like, we've been here for a while and this is just happening. Um, but like I said, I loved the first two parts so much that even the third part couldn't like bring me down completely on it. Like I still really liked this movie. Um, and stuff like that, just because, like I said, the highs of the first two parts are so good. I'll definitely agree with that, because I was probably one of the later people to see this in terms of my letterbox friends, at least. And I just saw a bunch of three and a half, four stars. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm ready for this. And then I saw parts one and two. I was like, three and a half or four stars is low. And I thought the movie was going to end there. And then, <laughs> no, it just kept going. Um, but I do also, you, you mentioned Jason Schwartzman, who's great. Like him talking about his reservation at the restaurant and the <laughs> with the high chair and everything just had me cracking up. Um, Viola Davis is also incredible. Like, I I guess looking back, the she's Hunger having Games so movies, much fun too. That was so yeah. great to see. I mean, she's just eating it up. It was awesome. It, I think it's those three parts, and we haven't really talked about it that much yet. But definitely, Jason Schwartzman needs his flowers. So does Viola Davis. I think Rachel Zegler is also eating it up in her own way as well, because the guy who plays Coriolanus, I forgive me. I don't know his name. I know he's kind of like Tom. Yeah. He started to get some clout now. He's good, but next to Rachel Zegler, he's like the straight man next to like next to an all timer. She's going for it in every single scene. Oh, he's absolutely a straight man. And that's why, you know, he's spurned at the end and becomes evil. (laughs) Yeah. Also, don't forget my my guy Peter Dinklage. No, yeah, I, no, I was up his that. screen time, his ten but minutes always on. But Peter Dinklage time. is always right. on eleven. I don't know if Peter Dinklage has a setting less than eleven. <laughs> no, looking back at the earlier Hunger Games movies, you know they had uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, they had uh, Julianne Moore, they had all these people, Donald Sutherland. You know, they had a huge list of supporting actors who were just all time Hollywood. Uh, greats so it makes sense that all of a sudden you're bringing in Viola Davis and Peter Dinklage to just do you know bit parts basically but Viola Davis is like her level of investment for what this movie is it's a Hunger Games prequel 10 years after the original one ended (laughs) or however long and she's like you said she's having so much fun and she's so good and so dastardly I don't know how often I use the word dastardly, but it's fun in this context. <laughs> it um, is. And Peter Dinklage, he's layered. He he has, you know, uh, depth to him as a character. And he, like you said, brings it emotionally. There's a lot of great stuff for these supporting actors who, like, didn't have to, you know, invest the way that they did for what this movie is. Yeah, and that was really cool. Like, Peter Dinklage's character is almost like the future of the Hunger Games just showing in one person like he kind of foresees what it's like becoming already and what it's going to become and uh he's the most affected by it but yeah no for sure that's definitely seems like the formula here you get like two two or three younger younger stars and then you just surround them with like hollywood elite talent that can just like be there to eat up scenes when they need to and then other times they're just like so good as acting partners with the other people um, so yeah, they definitely kind of followed that formula. You get to like the two young hot people and then you just surround them with like some of the best actors alive. Yeah. And it's nice when Rachel Zegler, the young actress can hold her own with 
the other people because she's supposed to be the Katniss role and she does it well. She does it very well, in my opinion. But yes, Viola Davis steals every single freaking scene she's in. So you are correct there, sir. Based on the Shazam movie, I think all you need to do is let Rachel Zegler sing and then she's going to be good because she's great in West Side Story and she's great in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But everyone's bad in Shazam too. So that's I was not, about to say, I don't know if like, it's not her fault. If there was any saving that movie, I don't know if that's really yeah, on. But Dragon there is definitely is like a layer too. that's added when she gets to sing. Like they, she definitely like kind of seems to open up more and give a little more of a performance when she gets to sing in the role. Yeah. Let's move on to the killer. Uh, after a fateful near miss, an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt he insists isn't personal. Directed by David Fincher, starring Michael Fassbender, the new Netflix release, because that's the only place that Fincher puts out his movies and shows anymore. I low side of liked this, and that's a little bit generous. Uh, Caleb, what did you think? I liked it because I thought it might be the funniest movie of the year. <laughs> well, yes, we'll get into that. Sam, go for it. I loved it because okay. it's, it's really funny and it's also <laughs> really good. David Fincher making a making a comedy that the whole time he just pretended was a Jason Bourne movie. And then he recently is like, jokes on you. This is a comedy. See, that's what I didn't get when I watched it. I was brought to my attention later on hearing other people talking about it, that it was intended to be a comedy. And I, looking back, I figured it out. Um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it. So why don't you guys talk about it for a minute and say like why you thought it was so great. What was so funny about it to you? All right. Well, the opening scene alone is hilarious because it opens with this monologue (laughs) where Michael Fassbender's character, the killer is uh, going on and on about how perfect he is at the job and how he <laughs> focuses all this energy on being great and all this stuff. And it literally goes on for like 10 minutes. And then the first chance he gets to like do his assassin job, he freaking misses. And I don't know. I just thought that was hilarious. I literally had to pause it because I was cackling <laughs> at the fact that we just invested all this time thinking this guy is so like with this guy telling us he's so awesome at his job just for him to screw up and then literally there isn't really like a clean kill in the whole movie i don't know if that's that's kind of spoiler territory i don't think that spoiler that spoils a whole lot but there isn't really like a good i guess clean professional kill in this whole movie it's all just like him trying to do that and then botching it like repeatedly and i just think that's really funny that they almost hold the the audience hostage like you don't get anybody else's perspective You just kind of have to figure out that this guy is like full of BS for yourself. And I enjoyed it. I thought like he's kind of an unreliable narrator, but it kind of makes fun of him being that at the same time, which I thought was really great. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I I did. Not only does he miss his shot is that he he also kills the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) He kills an innocent person. I mean, it's. She's just there to do her job. And all of a sudden, Michael Fassbender shoots it. It's just a great line. And forgive me, this is the PG-13 part of this, but just the, oh, shit. Right. <laughs> so funny. It's, it's like if you had accidentally like dropped like dropped like a chocolate chip into like a vanilla shake by accident. It's like, ah, shit. Like that's how he responds to killing the wrong person. Also, like no matter what, like, 
Fincher just automatically... I think it'd be impossible for me to really hate a Fincher movie because he's... I mean, this almost seems a little... Like, there's a parts of it that feel a little autobiographical. Not that, like... Not the him being bad at his job part, but some of the <laughs> perfectionist stuff. Like, Fincher's visual style and language is so good. It, like, he's so meticulous about it. There's not, like, anything that's out of place. Um, I just really respond to it. I mean, every one of his movies looks gorgeous. And I, I know that's not, like, anything new to add. But um, if you can make a movie this funny that looks this good, like, that to me is an impressive feat. So I will Agreed. say this. I disagree about it looking good. And that's the first time I have thought that about a Fincher movie. Wow. Um, okay. It seemed overly digital to me right from the opening titles. Um, and I think the opening titles were part of the joke too, where it just like throws mm-hmm. you right into these bombastic opening, you know, almost uh, self-referential, self-parodying opening titles. Cause that's been Fincher's thing his whole career. But the rest of the yeah. movie just seemed very digital and kind of blandly staged to me. Maybe it's because I had watched Gone Girl like a couple nights before and realized just how great that one is and how great it looks. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Something about it just felt Netflix when Fincher doesn't normally feel Netflix to me. Okay. I can respect I can definitely that. see a little. I think, yeah, I think some of it's a little, a little more muted on purpose, but... Um, sure. I, and I, I definitely do also think like this definitely was like, I don't know, you know, I don't, obviously don't know a lot about Fincher, but this obviously didn't feel like as big of a task as like some of his other movies. Yeah. Um, and I was watching that breakdown of the, um, it's the moped, moped scooter chase. And mm. a lot of it was digital. And I did go back and watch it. And I was like, okay, this doesn't look as good on second watch as I thought it did. Um, obviously it's really impressive what they did with it, but I was like, at this point, it feels like it would have just been easier to get somebody to actually drive the bike at at night. Uh, right. Um, but you know, uh, overall though, I did still respond to the visuals a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to give Michael Fassbender props here. This is one of my favorite performances of the year and Fassbender is really, really good here. Because he has, like we've been talking about, this self-confidence, this irrational, just I am the very best at my job. And maybe it's not irrational because he doesn't die. And aside from that one slip up at the beginning, he kills everybody who gets in his way. And his subtle commentary, it's interesting to look into the mind of a killer like this because it's not James Bond. He's not suave. He's not Jason Bourne who's determined and vengeful in an odd way. He's not John Wick, who's just a machine. He's just a dude doing a job. And it's interesting. And that they, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> and new balance sneakers. Yep. And in that perfect, perfect, perfect button up. But <laughs> as I'm, as I'm watching it, I'm like, how often do I have these thoughts while I'm working too? Or just think about something completely random while I'm supposed to be doing my job. And I will not, and shout out to my employer for being merciful to me. But like, <laughs> it's sometimes you just have random moments where you're working, doing something. It's just like, I wonder if chocolate would taste any different if they cooked it with more eggs or something where you just have like a random thought for no reason. Sure. And it's like, that's what that happens in this movie constantly. 
It's like, I appreciate the inner dialogue. Usually inner dialogues can be kind of annoying, but here it's interesting. Oh, that's where all the comedy is derived from. You know, it, yeah, it's the juxtaposition between the dialogue, inner dialogue and the images. I don't know how much actual spoken dialogue Fassbender has in the movie, but his internal dialogue is his ADR is terrific. What is the scene with, you know, the guy at the desk and the nail gun, but Charles Burnell, that, my guy, right? there's not much besides that. Yeah. Definitely. No. And then he had, does have that really great scene with uh, Tilda Swinton toward the end. Of oh, the that's right. That's right. Yeah. I really loved that scene a lot. Um, where he's almost coming face to face with his like inverse with somebody who has used this lifestyle to live a certain way that he's, you know, he's, uh, eating the, just the egg from an egg McMuffin from McDonald's (laughs) and, uh, and, uh, like showering and like, or like cleaning himself in like airport bathrooms and stuff. And then she's like fine dining and like living this expensive lifestyle. And I did really enjoy that scene um because once again that seemed a little like fincher almost like looking at his own process and then i'm sure you know we all know like we've read about how annoying he can be to work with like how many takes he requires and stuff like that like i'm sure there's times where he sees other filmmakers he sees the way other filmmakers work and he's like man i wish i could be that laid back about that and that's what the scene with Tilda Swinton felt like to me was like he was coming face to face with somebody who's doing the same job as him, but is almost the exact opposite than him. And he's almost wishing like, you know, he could be that way, but he just like mentally knows he couldn't get there. Yeah. He did directors on directors with Fincher and uh, Clint, e- Clint Eastwood, the two take Clint. Yeah. I wanted to see what you guys thought of this. Did you, did you notice all of the references? There were constantly references to like Amazon, Airbnb, Storage Wars, Uber. WeWorks. WeWorks. <laughs> yeah, like all of this modern stuff. What did you make of that? Like that had to be intentional, throwing all of the, these specific brands and companies into the dialogue. You got to get marketing somehow and you got to get you got to get that money to put your product into a movie or something. And Netflix isn't afraid of it, but also... Fincher knows how to do it where it's actually kind of a joke. He's that good. And I think that's a comedy of like, this guy knows how everything is made super easy for us by these technologies we have. And I like that part of it. I also think Fincher started in commercials. I mean, that's like how he like first came into directing was commercials for, for big corporations like Nike and Google and stuff like that. So that's another thing where I definitely think it was intentional and he's almost making fun of himself again. Um, like I like this one feels more of just like a pet side project than like a real Fincher movie. And that works in its sure. favor and it to its detriment. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that was intentional. He's almost playing at himself there. I mean, he, like I said, he started doing commercials for, for people like for corporations like that. So I definitely think that was almost intentional on his part. It's kind of hilarious how much of a corporate henchman uh, the guy who directed Fight Club is, <laughs> ultimately. Yeah. And like he knows he created, he, like he helped create this monster, like or right. at least helped it at some point. You know, like he knows that like his big break was also him helping these big corporations just like make all this money and like like you know expand and grow and stuff. So yeah, it definitely felt intentional on his part. 
Well, Caleb, I really like your take. Uh, I'm going to have to rewatch the movie at some point with that in mind. Uh, but until then, let us move on to the Marvels. Carol Danvers gets her powers entangled with those of Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau, forcing them to work together to save the universe. Directed by Nia DaCosta, starring Brie Larson, Tiona Paris, and Aman Vellani. Caleb, what did you think of the Marvels? I thought this one was okay. And I wanted to like it. I wanted to like it so bad. Um, I think Amon Vellani is a star. I think if you're a Tiana Paris fan, you should go watch They Clone Tyrone on Netflix instead because she's much better and much better utilized yes. than that. Jamie endorsement. Yeah, I mean, she's going toe-to-toe with Jamie Foxx in that one. This one, she just kind of feels like the third person. And then um, I still feel like Brie Larson... And it's not completely her fault. It's kind of the way the MCU set it up. But I still don't feel like she has a grasp on this character. I don't think Marvel has a grasp on. I was going to say, character. does anyone? I don't. Th- no, I don't think they know how to write this. I don't think they know what tone this character is supposed to be. I like. They seem so confused about it, and in turn, her performance feels confused. Like she, like there was times where she, in my opinion, seemed kind of lost in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing kind of holding it together was in my opinion, like Amon Vellani's like performance. I think she's a star, but I don't know what else there is in this movie that would draw audiences. I mean, that would be the only, if somebody asked me why they should see it, I'd probably just say Amon Vellani. I don't know if there's any other reason for somebody to go watch it. Um, Before we get too far into it, Sam, real quick, what did you think? What was your rating? I would like it, but it's a, it's not a glowing liked it. It's, it's a fun time. What I appreciated was that it's Marvel not taking itself. It felt like Marvel not taking itself so seriously. Probably some of the biggest flaws I, probably the biggest thing I did not like like about Ant Man, and the Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania from earlier this year, which I can't believe was this year, was how yeah. stupidly self serious it took itself. It's like you are the Ant Man franchise. Shut up and make a joke. Like that's all you need to do. You are Ant Man. And they took Paul it. Paul Rudd is your lead. Yeah, Paul Rudd is your lead. Also, my wife doesn't like Paul Rudd, so I've mentioned my wife and my mom now. So I've got two <laughs> going for bingo. It, it felt too self serious, but then here it's like this is a joke. Like I don't remember the villain's name. I don't care. No. But Amon Vellani is good. I think Brie Larson doesn't really. I don't want to say she. I don't think she's doing bad. I think it's just. No one knows what like we've been talking about. Nobody knows what to do with the character. It's like it's like Superman. Like she's so powerful. She's supposed to be the most powerful person in the MCU for all sakes and purposes, except for Amelia Clark somewhere. But it's there's no stopping her. So what kind of tone do you take with the unstoppable force? I don't know. And they decided, all right, just be a little loose with it. We'll see how it goes. And I thought it was pretty good, actually. Her performance when she wasn't taking herself so seriously but it is poorly written in that aspect and you can tell like they didn't really care about the tone because they let samuel jackson make jokes the whole time which he's good at but like you can like you have samuel jackson like come on tell him to do something serious like he that's what he's there for he gets swallowed by a cat at some point (laughs) i'm pretty sure he did right (laughs) that that did happen yes so I have to say I've basically fallen off the whole Marvel thing. I haven't seen any of the shows since uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So this is the first one of these I've gone into 
feeling totally lost. Like I didn't know what I was supposed to have known going into it and like what was new information being revealed in the movie. So I guess ultimately you could say like low side of okay slash high side of didn't like it for me because I, like I didn't hate my, my time. I didn't feel like I completely (laughs) wasted a night, but I also didn't feel like I really gained much because the movie doesn't feel like it's about anything really. It's just a succession of scenes where a bunch of different things happen. And like we've all said so far, I love Brie Larson as an actress. I think she's great. Um, She's given a number of great performances in her career, but she's been coasting basically since the Oscar win for Room. And especially as Captain Marvel, uh, like we said, they don't know how to write her. They don't, they haven't given her any solid characterization, especially not in this movie. Um, All of a sudden she's like, did evil things, I guess. And we're supposed to feel conflicted about that. But then also uh, it kind of hand waves that and wants us to still think she's the hero. Like there's just all of this, these random disparate parts that come together to make just kind of a jumbled mess with scenes that are okay here and there at best. Um, Tiona Paris is given next to, no, next to nothing to do um, apart from just like being mad at, Captain Marvel for something that I, like I said, I didn't understand. And I didn't know if that was because I haven't seen the other stuff or if the movie just didn't do a good enough job of communicating it. Um, and my problem with the, the, what is it? Ms. Marvel, the Kamala Khan, uh, Kamala Khan character. Yeah. Is that she's just the same as Spider-Man and Spider-Man homecoming, which is incredibly grating to me, which is just the starstruck teenager who is just happy to be a part of the team and won't stop talking about how happy they are to be a part of the team. Um, and that I really don't enjoy Spider-Man Homecoming for that very reason. And uh, apart from how charming uh, Amon Vellani obviously is, like I saw her on Seth Meyers, she's just effortlessly charismatic. Um, and some of that comes through in her performance. Um, but the character's not done any favors by just fangirling every time that she's talking to Captain Marvel. There's one glimpse where she, where she like, questions her hero worship for half a second and then that's just never brought back i was like oh is this movie about to do something interesting and then it, it didn't so there's just like a lot of nothing to me um it's just inoffensive ultimately uh brought up by the singing planet which i really did think was was very good i know that the uh i know the listeners will not be able to see this but i do have my uh princess marvel funko pop over here which i think is the best pop culture thing i've gotten out of this because it's her and her princess outfit from this movie Mm. i think it's fantastic but yes that scene was pointless except to get k-pop fans to show up for the movie so (laughs) it is what it is yeah marvel just is in this like these this last phase i don't even know if they're on if if this is another phase after the movies that followed um endgame or whatever but they just like can't get out of their own way their insistence on their world building has been so lackluster over the past couple years and their insistence on using these cgi infested worlds when they're clearly their visual effects aren't up to par yeah 
it baffles me every time and every time I expect it to be different and then every time they still do it. Like I just don't understand why you would write a movie where it's so reliant on these other planets or the these settings where you're clearly not on location and then you don't give you don't put enough resources into making sure those visuals are good. That was the most baffling thing about Ant-Man Quantumania was that it looked oh like goodness. that. It was when terrible. you yeah. When the whole movie is written to be in that location and you it looked like that and then this movie wasn't quite as bad but it's still it's just like they just can't get out of their own way. I I think if they did a full genre movie and made it like like a, almost a buddy comedy between the three of them I think it would have improved it honestly because I couldn't tell you yeah. the bad guy's name. I could barely tell you their motivations. They maybe got 15 minutes of screen time in the whole movie. And then we're just supposed to be heavily invested in this fight at the end between them. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know why I'm still like baffled by it. I think I just keep trying to hope that they'll like figure it out. But like, yeah, I think the MC is only hope at this point. I know this isn't like intended to be like a full broad MCU uh, talk but i really do think like the only way to kind of re-energize it is to go like full genre with some of these movies like this could have been a fairly decent like buddy comedy between the three of them and they still tried to fit in like the scrolls and nick fury and like these different planets and the different things that are like the different um disasters that are happening to the planets and it just like I felt like it bogged it down because there were a couple scenes where when it's just the three, mm-hmm. it wasn't bad. Like they, they had a, a little bit of chemistry there. I think if they had been able to like given more scenes like that, it could have been even better. Um, those were the most watchable parts of the movies were when it was just the three of them, like kind of together, in my opinion, everything else felt like almost wasted. I, I did, wasn't invested in it. I didn't have any reason to be. When they're just chilling on the ship, you know, practicing their powers that they're switching around. That is fun. You know, that's just the three actors just kind of being themselves and, you know, riffing off each other and making faces and doing fun things. But like you said, I just echo everything, everything else you say, the villain is kind of nothing. And is, you know, the hero wronged me in some way. So I need to get them back by being evil. And it's just like, all right, I've seen this so many times before. Yeah. Agreed. Let's move on to another villain who we don't know much about based on their movie and the movie Napoleon, an epic that details the checkered rise and fall of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife, Josephine, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. Sam, what did you think of the film Napoleon? I would give it a middling like uh, why would i say middling i'm just gonna say i liked it i like joaquin phoenix i don't think this is his best work and ridley scott is basically hitched his wagon to either russell crowe or uh joaquin phoenix is going to show up and be epic when i have these vast character tales to tell in these odysseys mm. and you know it's his choice i guess adam driver wouldn't have worked for napoleon because he was in house of gucci and the last duel he's about a foot and a half too tall. Yeah. I 
he's he's too tall to be Napoleon. Isn't he like six three? Like he can't be something Napoleon. like that. Yeah, it's like it's the Hugh Jackman problem for Wolverine. Like he's too tall, but you know, it was Hugh Jackman, and he looked like him, so we all let it slide. Right. I also would say that I liked Napoleon. Maybe I'm giving it a little bit of extra grace because it's Joaquin Phoenix and Ridley Scott. There are lots of problems with it, but I had a good time. And there are some incredible battle sequences that really elevate the movie. Caleb, what did you think? Yeah, I'm on the liked it as well. I seem to be a little higher on it than most of the people I've seen on Letterboxd and and stuff Mm. like that. Um, Yeah, kind of like you said, it's uh, some of the best battle scenes you've you'll see in like movies in recent years and then some of the funniest sex scenes you'll see in movies in recent <laughs> yes. years and it just kind of flashes back and forth between those two i was some super uncomfortable sex sitting scenes. next to my father-in-law during those sex oh scenes. wonderful <laughs> <laughs> shout out dad i was uncomfortable there's too there's three some of the funniest sex scenes is literally my first note uh, on this movie. <laughs> Wait, okay, hold on. I know this this is about Napoleon, but which which movie has the funnier Walking Phoenix sex, sex scene? This movie oh. or Bo is Afraid? <laughs> Can I pick oh, Inherent man. Vice? Like that's just <laughs> worse. <laughs> There's some th- some really good ones out of those three. I would have to go Napoleon though. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> option you said, the way he walks up to her and all of a sudden just going so fast. <laughs> oh, you were talking about the master, just based off Robert's description, right? <laughs> no, I'm talking uh, about Napoleon. Anyway. How many, um, how many terrible sex scenes does Joaquin Phoenix have in his movies? God, this is, I mean, this is a bad trend. They're good sex scenes because he's bad at it. Yeah, uh, it's, it's meant to be funny. Like, yeah. he, he just He's a weird guy. He just does it well. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, no, I um, I braved the, my AMC here's heating was out hmm. when I went and saw this movie. It was 35 degrees in the theater and I didn't bring a coat because I was like, oh, I'm just going to the movies. Like, it'll be perfect. Tem- it'll be fine temperature inside. And uh I did it just to hear the I did it just to hear the lamb chop of destiny line <laughs> and to be freezing along with Napoleon in in Russia. Yeah, uh, it made it made it more realistic. I, was right. like, I felt for those soldiers. Napoleon I, I turned love... off the uh, heating in your in your AMC. It wasn't the people from Moscow. It was Napoleon. He did it. Yeah, Napoleon himself. <laughs> I love Joaquin Phoenix just as an actor, and I think. For what this movie is and what its portrayal of Napoleon is, I think he works perfectly because he is great at being just a pathetic little loser. <laughs> and that's yeah. what Napoleon is in this movie. Just the um, weirdest person you know that just happens to like be in power or have some pull. Right, who just happens to have the highest position of power in the world at the time. I don't know a lot about actual Napoleon and his history. Um I didn't internalize a lot of it from high school. So I, you know, the movie, I think that's where its biggest failure was to me was that like for someone who doesn't know a lot about the history, it just like jumps from event to event and doesn't give much context in between and doesn't give much characterization. You kind of understand the essence of Napoleon. Like you understand, like I said, that he's just this pathetic little loser and that Joaquin is great at playing that. But like 
beyond... I, I don't know why he wanted power in the first place. I kind of understand the motivation once he feels you know possessive of Josephine. That makes sense to me, where he's just trying to show how great he is. Uh, that all works. But the lead into that is just... He's just kind of a guy and who happens to meet a girl. And then next thing you know... <laughs> He's, she says, you want this for the rest of your life? And he makes the funniest face I've seen in movies this year. Um, to me, this is one of the funniest movies I saw when you, you guys were talking about The Killer. Um, yeah, this is definitely up there too, for sure. I was in a packed theater. I don't think anyone else realized it was a comedy. I was laughing the entire time. I didn't. I barely heard another laugh the entire no. time. My theater wasn't packed, but there was other people, and I don't know if it was because it was freezing in there or not. But like, I was the only one that was like laughing at some of the lines and, and some of the scenes. We know when Logan was like, laughing. Caleb's movie. It's because it, everyone was frozen to death. Everyone's frozen to death. That's very possible. But I was like, is nobody realizing that like Ridley Scott hates this dude and like is making fun of this dude for the whole movie? Right. Um, I think the, the the thing that I came away with though is like. The movie was like three hours long. I think it's like two fifty or something like that. Yes. Um, but it almost like, I don't know. It felt like it was two movies mashed together. Like, I don't know. It, you know, it's the, it might be another case of Ridley Scott where the director's cut's going to be four hours long. and It'll be a lot better than the theatrical version, but it like, I don't feel like it like, gave us a really great picture fully of all his battle successes and why he was so good, so much better than people for, for that part of history in battle. And um, like you said, we still didn't get a great grasp at his motivations for wanting to be in power in the first place either. And so it almost felt like two different movies kind of mashed together. And sometimes it played well for it. Like when it would go from this intense battle scene to, the funniest sex scene you've seen all year. Um, but then other times it did just like, it just like made it hard to kind of grasp the movie and like kind of be invested in what was happening. Cause it was such a whiplash a couple times yeah. where I was just like, this literally felt feels like two people did two different movies and then they just kind of combined them. I, I didn't get that feeling so much. I, the feeling I got was kind of similar was it, they're covering such a large part of his life. This is probably his early to mid twenties until the end of his life. So yep. his, the tone of his life changes from conquering hero and soldier to emperor and then, and then rebel leader again and outcast. So I think there is some tonal dissonance in there. I would agree with you on that front. Definitely. And, but it's walking Phoenix. So his weirdness throughout is the through line, which holds it together because Napoleon was weird his whole life. Like when he goes up to the sarcophagus in Egypt is just like a weird little scene, but I thought it worked really Apparently well. that was an ad lib. Like apparently yeah, the yeah, mummy yeah. falling to the side was on accident and Joaquin jumping back was like, <laughs> <laughs> they were just like, Ridley's like, that's great. Keep it. That's funny. <laughs> I do want to linger on the battles a little bit more because there was the battle of Austerlitz, the one on the frozen lake, which is just some of the most inventive stuff that I've seen. I don't know, again, how accurate that is, whether or not it's accurate, uh, conveying it into film 
that effectively, like you said, Caleb, just now stunning. It's great. It's, you know, all of a sudden, once you realize what the technique of that battle is, you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm in for this. Um, I think this movie, unlike a lot of other war movies that I've seen, does a good job of conveying military strategy. Um, just in the context of the battle scenes, because, you know, scene to scene, not so much, but within the scenes themselves, you understand why, you know, the horses are going around this way or why they're sending these people at what point. Um, even when it's going poorly at Waterloo at the end, you understand the uh, opponents as well. So I like that a lot. I thought uh, that's effective because I'm not a military strategist, especially <laughs> of, of that time uh, when war was different. So just to see that conveyed just in a way that an idiot like me could understand it instead of just seeing a bunch of guys running towards each other and shooting. Um, yeah, it's really effective. Yeah, I think that's almost why like the two movie thing is just stuck in my mind because the battle mm. scenes were so well done. I almost just would have loved a full Napoleon movie with a bunch more of those. And then like another Napoleon movie where it's just like the political stuff. I'd watch that too. And I, I, I do think it blended it. It blended it really well. I just thought uh, it could have been done a little better. Also, Vanessa Kirby was really great in this too. Yeah. We haven't talked about her at all. She was awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think we mentioned her. She's incredible in this. I, so originally wasn't this that part supposed to be um, Jody Comer? I believe. Jody Comer, yeah. And I definitely think they made the right decision recasting, or if it was a scheduling conflict, I think it was scheduling because I couldn't really see Jody Comer in this role. It's not that she's a bad actress, but Vanessa Kirby is just the right amount of crazy where she could mm-hmm. be this kind of character. And I don't really see Jody Comer in that position. I. I, maybe she could i don't know but vanessa kirby just fits right in i like her a lot i've liked her since about time and you know then she started showing up in like action movies and uh pieces of a woman is excellent and she's great in everything that she's in um and she matches joaquin's energy she like tries to get the best of him in scenes and it's kind of fun to see that push and pull mm-hmm. agreed like you said though caleb uh I think I wonder how much the extended cut, the director's cut, is going to fill in some of these gaps that we're talking about. I suspect it will do so effectively because that's just kind of really Scott's, uh, you know, track record. So I wouldn't be surprised if all of a sudden these gaps are filled in and we understand the motivations and we're not just being thrown from title tar- card to title card. Um, I wouldn't mind that. I'm I'm gonna load it up on apple tv the moment that it's available for me to watch yeah let's move on to next goal wins the story of the infamously terrible american samoa soccer team known for a brutal 2001 fifa match they lost 31 to nothing directed by taika waititi also starring michael fassbender oscar kitely and kaimana um Caleb didn't get to see this one, so Sam and I are going to have a quick discussion about it. Uh, Sam, what did you think of Next Goal Wins? A low side of liked it. I really enjoy the final game. I think that's very strong and very well done. I don't really like Michael Fassbender in this movie. I think he's trying to be funny, but it was interesting because it felt 
earlier this year, we had a similar kind of thing happen with uh, No Hard Feelings, where Jennifer Lawrence, who's mm. kind of known for being a little more of a serious actor who's had her franchise work, she did a comedy and she fit in seamlessly. And it was incredible, her performance in that movie. But here, Michael Fassbender, it, it feels odd and tacked on. There are definitely moments where he is funny, but it doesn't feel effortless. And I think that maybe shows some weaknesses in his range. But I think the first hour of it is choppy and odd and very Taika Waititi doing too much Taika Waititi stuff. And then the actual game itself is very good. And it gets the blood going and it gets you rooting for the underdogs. And it succeeds in that front. See, I also like this. I probably liked it a little bit more than you did. Um, The thing with Taika Waititi is that I realized that I think he's just kind of off-putting as an actor outside of his own movies. And, you know, as a celebrity, he can get kind of obnoxious with just all the interviews that he gives and just all the quotes that you're constantly seeing where he doesn't seem to take anything seriously. Um, But in reality, I think he only has one bad movie, and that's Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, Jojo Rabbit, I go back and forth on depending on my mood. Uh, All the other ones I kind of really like a lot to certain extents. Um, And this one feels like his movies before Thor Ragnarok. Uh, It gets back to that quirky sensibility, quirky yet earnest sensibility. But like you said, the Fassbender character does feel out of place. And I think that's the biggest piece of dissonance for me is that the Fassbender character is in a different movie and Every other scene feels like a Taika movie in the way that he wants it to be and like in the way that they used to come across. Um, man, it's just that Fassbender character that's very hit or miss and it's usually miss. Yeah, I would say he's usually miss until the very end. And I I really liked all the bit characters. Like there's supporting mm-hmm. characters and then there's like bit characters who are like there for a scene or two. I really think every single bit character is hilarious. And they were all very oh, good in their little parts. And it makes the world feel lived in. And then there's like some of the more main characters that they don't feel as fleshed out or as well done as they could. Uh, which ones were you thinking besides Fastbender that didn't feel as fleshed out? Uh, the the name of the the name of the actor escapes me, and the name of the character the name of the character escapes me too, but the not the previous head coach, because that guy was funny. It was the like head of like football oh, for uh, American Samoa. Will Arnett? No, no. He's always good. Oh, uh, Oscar Kitely? Is that who you're talking about? The ball uh, guy? Yeah, Tavita. Yeah, who plays Tavita? Oscar Kitely. I didn't know that was his name. I didn't know that guy. <laughs> yeah, neither did I. Are you saying you didn't like him? I thought he was underwritten. I, I would have liked because... more for him to do. He was my favorite part of the movie uh, overall. I really loved him. I We were filling out our sifties to to uh, do the nominations that are going to be coming out in January. If you're listening to this and you're looking forward to that. And spoiler alert, he's my third favorite <laughs> performance of the year. I think he's great. Uh, I sure, got he's a little underwritten. <laughs> I got Fassbender but, from The Killer as like my fourth pick for lead performance. <laughs> honestly, it's not a bad one. I'll grant you that uh, Tavita is underwritten a little bit, but I think that every moment that the character is on screen, uh, 
he's batting a thousand. He his line deliveries are hilarious. The way he just like backs away saying one goal and like uh, when they're telling him whether or not they won the match after he <laughs> the after he passes out funny. at the end. Yeah, I, I just think he's such a charming actor, um, and every time he delivers a line every time he's on screen i can't help but just feel warm and fuzzy towards him so uh yeah he's he's one of my favorite performances of the of the entire year i can um i will say though the comedy feels inherent to the samoan characters so like him and the rest of the team um but then once you get to fassbender and elizabeth moss and will arnett they just kind of feel there, especially the Elizabeth Moss and Will Arnett, and even Reese Darby. Eh, Reese Darby is he he's good in this, but he's barely has any time. But the other two, they're just kind of there and aren't really given any opportunities to do much. And it's pretty disappointing and like I said, jarring to go between the two. Um, especially when the rest of it, like I said, to me feels quintessentially Taika. It feels stunt casty a little bit to get those folks to show up. Yeah. But maybe that's what they were okay with. So. Yeah. The last thing I'll say is that this, I think it just kind of stays in its lane. It could have gone further. It could have been a little bit more deeper and a little bit uh, more resonant, but everything emotionally kind of just stays at arm's length and it feels ultimately cliched and it's going to be exactly what you expect from a sports movie. Maybe my Uh, disappointment is added because I've been binging Ted Lasso with the wife. So. And that's terrific soccer programming. So, sure. I'll I'll reserve my extended Ted Lasso season three thoughts for a different time. Uh, I I prefer this over that. I'll just say that. <laughs> Let's move on then to Priscilla. When teenage Priscilla, oh man, I looked up how to pronounce her former la- her maiden name before we started, but I don't remember something French. Uh, when she meets Elvis, the man who is already a meteoric rock and roll superstar becomes. Someone entirely unexpected in private moments, a thrilling crush, an ally in loneliness, a vulnerable best friend. Directed by Sofia Coppola, starring Kaylee Spaney and Jacob Elordi. Uh, Caleb also didn't get to see this one, so Sam and I were going to talk about this one again. Um, I really like this. Like, high side of liked it, maybe low side of loved. I like a lot of uh, Sofia Coppola movies, and this one is probably my second or third favorite at this point. Um, she does a great job of, you know, highlighting young women in the vicinity of, or in the eye of, uh, fame, which is of course where she has, what she can relate to being the daughter of literally the director of the Godfather and Apocalypse Now. So placing, uh, Priscilla next to literally Elvis, I, I know it's a true story, but exploring that character feels perfectly in line with her strengths, and I think she pulls it off great. What did you think of this? I would give this movie a uh, high side of liked it. I don't think it's terrific, but I think Kaylee Spaney's performance as Priscilla is is a notable one and a very strong one. It's not inventive in a way, as in I don't think she's I don't think she's doing anything brand new or anything that's too difficult. But what she does, she does well. And I will take this time to say, uh, to go in one of my soapboxes that, uh, Jacob Lordy's not that good of an actor and he's just tall and handsome <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you're blessed and I think he got it. So I really did like Kaylee Spaney though. She carries the movie and Priscilla 
sorry. Um, I said Priscilla because you mentioned the daughter thing. <laughs> um, oh. <laughs> uh, Sophia's Sophia, Sophia Coppola's style really carries the movie as well because it feels so clean and nice. And I think that that's something that deserves credit. It's not that noteworthy otherwise. I hope Kaylee Spaney gets credit for her performance, but I wouldn't pick this for Best Picture or even nominate it for that. But I hope she gets some props. I think we can have half of the Jacob Elordi conversation now and the other half in a minute. What I will say about Jacob Elordi in this context, though, is that uh, I think it's a great bit of casting because I think he's something like 6'5". I don't know the exact heights. He's something like 6'5", and Kaylee Spaney's something like 5'8". Um, in a very naturalistic movie, an otherwise naturalistic movie, that's pun intended, a heightened effect where uh, it really shows the difference in power dynamics between Elvis and Priscilla. And I think that works wonders for what the movie's trying to do because he literally dwarfs her with how big he is. Um, so even IMDb though he says Kaylee Spaney is 5'1". Five one, my goodness, even worse. And Jacob Elordi is six five. <laughs> not not that it's a moral failing. Five one, just in the in the disparity between their heights. Thank you for looking that up. Listen, we're uh, still we're still throwing Caleb into the post on Jacob Elordi, and it's going to work great. <laughs> yes, <laughs> looks aren't going to do anything for you on the basketball nope. court, and when you're British, hit him with um, a drop step, it'll be fine. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just like their height disparity. It, it worked a lot. It was it nice to. Well. I'll say this for Lordy. I appreciated the less showy acting after Austin Butler and dealing with that for a year while he was sure. <laughs> while he was campaigning for Elvis. And it's not that I thought Austin Butler was bad, but it was just so right here in your face. And Lordy is just kind of tiring like, after a while. Yeah, yeah. it did. It, maybe not totally his fault, but I don't know who else to blame. So, yeah, I don't know how much I personally wanted to compare Elvis and Priscilla, the movies, but I will say that having seen Elvis, the movie helped me understand some of what was going on in Priscilla, because kind of like Napoleon, I don't know much about Elvis and his history. So, uh, you know, he's referencing the Colonel and I'm like, oh, that's Tom Hanks in a fat suit and a funny accent. I know what that (laughs) context is. Yep. (laughs) Like that, that makes sense to me. Uh, so there's moments here and there that actually kind of helped from having seen a movie I didn't enjoy overall. I wanted to mention that the end does feel kind of obligatory because after a whole movie of just like matter of factly showing you all of this heinous stuff, uh, and that's the strength of the movie, by the way, it just kind of presents this stuff to you and treats you as an adult who, with good morals, who, you know, can spot red flags and see the sirens wailing. And just kind of be like, hey, this is unacceptable. This is bad. Um, but once you get to the end, I think it kind of feels obligatory when the when the rest of it felt motivated by story and theme. Um, mm-hmm. I get that she's totally faithful to the book that Priscilla, the actual Priscilla wrote. Um, I think it was in the 80s. But I think sometimes you also need to take artistic license. And that might have helped in this to just... I don't know, make it just feel less obligatory. You got to follow the book, got to, you know, fill out her life, even though the final shot ultimately works really well for me. I agree. Let's bring Caleb back in. Let's talk about Saltburn. I'm, 
based on our <laughs> uh, brief comments before this, I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. A student at Oxford University finds himself drawn into the world of a charming and er- aristocratic classmate who invites him to his eccentric family's sprawling estate for a summer never to be forgotten. Directed by Emerald Fennell, starring Barry Keoghan, Jacob Elordi, our favorite on this podcast, R- Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, and many more. Caleb, what did you think of Saltburn? Um, I'd be on like the high side of it's okay, low side of liked it. All right, Sam? I'm going to break the categories just a little bit. I, I would say just it's just okay. I, I have my own ranking system that I have for all my sure. movies. And I have this one in, it's too well-made to be bad. It's too pretentious to be good. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, This is what I wanted to talk about because, guys, I really love this movie. I wasn't really expecting to, but I I really loved it. Um, I've seen a lot of criticism that it's Emerald Fennell just trying to be transgressive, trying to be edgy. Um. And even given the stuff that you see in this movie, (laughs) I didn't feel that. Like, I just kind of felt like this is a big swing, and that's what all that it is. Um, It's bombastic. She is just kind of trying to be silly. I think she's in the know, realizing that all the characters are ridiculous, and she's making fun of all of them all at the same time. Um. So to me, it's just a lot of fun looking at these beautiful images, these beautiful bodies all over the place in this like beautiful estate. I don't know. She just realizes that everyone is hot. Everything is great. Everything is cool to look at. There's there's nothing better than just like chilling out in the summer when you have literally no responsibilities. Um, It's a hangout movie. It's a twisted hangout movie for a while um and i i like its ultimate resolution it's one of those where you kind of think back on some of the things that happened and you're like oh that now that makes a lot of sense that's kind of fun um yeah i just i i really love this i had a great time with it i'm gonna clear out for caleb since um we monologued for two movies straight so caleb (laughs) my thing with it that i just like okay i agree about the visual the visual language of this like emerald fennell i got some problems with her honestly most of my problems with her as a or as a writer um Mm -hmm. as a director she definitely has like a good eye she shoots like you know it's just one of the best part of movies is just a bunch of hot people doing stuff and she shoots the hot people really well i mean she shoots it very cinematically she definitely has like an an eye for that sort of stuff my my well, my biggest thing, I don't know. <laughs> my biggest thing is it. It there's like three, like kind of three different aspects of the movie, and they just didn't all work for me. Like the, I think the friendship aspect between the two of them was uh, worked for me the best, in my opinion, uh, between Felix and uh, Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought like some of the the humor worked. Um, and then, but kind of the, like, I guess this movie has been getting a lot of comparisons to talented Mr. Ripley. And I don't think they're very similar at all, but the, um, the one similarity they have, like the, the aspect of 
each that they have. I think Saltburn does a lot worse than Talented Mr. Ripley, in my opinion. It just didn't execute that part of the story for me. It just didn't, I don't know. I didn't like that part of it. So for me, that I think that's why I had the the problem with it. Not a huge problem with it. I'm there's been so many extremes on this movie. Everybody I've yeah. talked to either loves it or hates it. I'm probably like just in the middle. I thought it was beautiful to look at. I thought it was kind of fun. I thought it was 20 to 30 minutes too long. And um, in the end, I didn't, it kind of fell apart for me toward the end, but I had fun with it. So like it, for me, it was just kind of okay. I just didn't, I couldn't get to like, like it or love it. Cause I, like I said, the like, um, I just kind of like the, I don't know how much spoiler you want to give, but not all of Oliver's character worked for me in his journey. I'll put it that way. Fair enough. I would agree with that take about Oliver and his character. It felt very similar to, there's a type of movie that's kind of happening right now. that has been happening for the last, I don't know, two to five years, I'd say, where it's really focusing on class and focusing on the haves and the have nots. And this definitely falls into that category, but we are trying to make a hero out of this guy who clearly is not really a, not really a safe individual. And maybe that's the commentary of like, this dude isn't safe and he's going after the, the right people to go after for him to, become this kind of person who he wants to be and have what he wants in life. But it's hard to get behind that kind of character and root for him. Like we had five seasons of breaking bad to get behind Walter White. So it's a, it's hard to root for the anti-hero, and it felt difficult to root for Barry Keoghan in this movie. We've talked about Jacob Elordi plenty. I'll just <laughs> say that he's hot. And I think everything you guys said about them, about Emerald Fennell knowing how to shoot attractive people is very true. And I think perhaps she needs to let somebody else come up with the script and come up with the idea. And then she maybe exec produces it or comes along and helps out. And then she directs. I think that could be a brilliant thing because the directing is good. And I think the acting is pretty yeah. good. Even, even Alordi isn't bad. Like, there's some there's a lot of people in here doing good work and I definitely really like Rosamund Pike in her performance she's able to do quite a lot and it felt like she had a well-defined role in a way that she hasn't in quite some time maybe since gone Probably girl Probably since gone girl yeah. yeah yeah why is she not cast in everything I don't she's no so idea. good I just like I was just like when I saw her I was like she's great in this she's like one of the maybe the best performance of anybody in my opinion and i'm like why is she not in every movie ever like she's just pitch perfect because she was in the pride and prejudice with uh kira knightley and she wasn't uh, elizabeth <laughs> yes yeah um my it well, it's the the catch 22 sam like you said like the class system has become like a big focus of movies. I mean, it's always there's always been movies about it, but I feel like over the last five to ten years, there's been a lot more. And it's the catch twenty two about the fact that like it's a rich person writing about the the class system. You know, like mm-hmm. that it always is almost always in the back of my mind, and like I end yeah. up having like a tough time with it when 
when yeah. I think about it, like you have a, you know, the, the rich people just inherently have like a, a bigger opportunity to write about this class system that's impacting people like that. Um, it reminded me a little bit, uh, these movies aren't very similar, but the menu last year was pitched as like this big class, like uh, attack on the class system. And for me, it, that didn't work for me in that movie either, as well as a lot of people. Like I thought the menu was at its best when it was just like a fun, fun kind of thriller more instead of like a statement on the class system and with Nicholas Holt um, being an idiot. Yeah. Like that was fun in that movie. This yeah. is kind of the same thing. I thought like some of the statements on class and stuff like didn't work for me, but this was a lot of fun when it was just like hot people having a good time and being kind of weird. Um, but it, the same problem I have with, I had with like promising young woman, Emerald Fennell's first movie so kind of with this, I was just like, I feel like she doesn't know how to land the plane. Like the first, the first hour or so of Promise Young Woman is pretty good. Like it's just a pretty good movie. And then it kind of like starts to fall apart toward the end, at least for me. And that's kind of how I felt about this was like the first hour to an hour and a half is pretty good. And then I thought, I don't know, the, the ending just didn't work for me. So a couple of things, uh, for me, with the class commentary, I 100% see where you're coming from, Caleb, about, you know, rich people themselves writing about this. Like, her name is literally Emerald Fennell, so yeah. uh, take, I take from that what you want. I think that her dad is a jewelry designer and is worth, yes. like, $5 million. Well, yeah, and isn't, like, Andrew Lloyd Webber or somebody like her godfather or something? Like, she's, yeah, something she's like that. very, like, upper class, so it's like, yeah. My problem with that is that if I apply that logic to one movie, then I just have to apply it to the rest of Hollywood. And then I just can't enjoy any Hollywood movies anymore because most people in Hollywood are just so disconnected from the everyday life of someone like me. Um, so that's at least what I tell myself for now. Give me a couple of years. Maybe I'll stop podcasting about movies in Hollywood because I just won't be able to take it anymore. Yeah. But for right now, I I allow myself to you know engage with, the art on that level um that's not to disagree with you it's just like here's my coping me mechanism because no, i agree with you that's fair i'm just not i just can't get there with that yet i i sure. I'm, i probably will at some point just be like you just need to get over it it's just what's happening but yeah i think it becomes a problem when you're asking us the viewers the common folk to take on this movie and enjoy it and root for your protagonist and make them likable and say, this is the common folk. This is you. You agree with this person. And then Barry Keoghan is a psychopath. It's like, well, I can't root for this guy anymore. So that's where I would completely disagree with you, Sam, is that I don't think we're supposed to root for him at all or to, or to be on his side. Um, Maybe not. That, that's an interest. That's an interesting way to view it. I don't know if I'm let's, another $5 to go to a theater to see it, to think about it that way. Let's right here let's put a spoiler tag on the rest of our Saltburn conversation. So if you're listening and you haven't seen Saltburn, uh, check the description and we'll skip to our wild cards is the next thing that you'll see. Um, so spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for Saltburn. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. You see Barry Keoghan's penis <laughs> many times. <laughs> and it was at that moment where I decided to root for him. No. Um, <laughs> oh, so the last five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
up until then, he's kind of a an, an enigma, right? Up until, you know, you see what his ultimate plan is when he runs into Rosamund Pike at the cafe or whatever. Um, you're just like, what is this guy's deal? And then you realize he kind of orchestrated this whole thing from the very beginning. And it's, you know, you see the fight club montage of like, oh, he's actually fighting himself. He's the one who put the tack in, in Jacob Elordi's tire. Um, right there is where I'm just like, oh, I'm not supposed to be on this guy's side anymore. I'm, you know, he is evil. Everyone is evil. Not evil, maybe, but just like we're supposed to be rooting against him. I think uh, the real villain in the movie is the idea of wealth and prosperity and power itself and not necessarily those who have it um, because the rich, like the the people who live at Saltburn, they're, you know, completely disconnected from everyone else. They don't have uh, any self-awareness. They're ridiculous. They're uh, complaining about stupid things. We hear over and over about how Felix just kind of has a favorite friend boy toy whatever you want to call it every year uh they use people they don't they don't care meanwhile the kyogen character the ollie he just wants the allure he he's drawn into the allure of wealth of the this grandiose lifestyle um and he'll he lives in a perfectly fine middle class upper middle class home and i'm sure there and i know there are uh other complexities I don't understand from the British class system that I'm not even going to try to get into, but like he lives in a perfectly happy family with siblings and a mom and a dad who love him very much. But even that's not enough for him because he is drawn to this, you know, opulent life. So ultimately what I'm trying to say is I think the movie is saying both of these people, both of these groups of people are in the wrong. Basically the only people who have it right are Oliver's family who are just like happy to live with what they have and uh are more self-aware and just like to do things like celebrate birthdays at home and appreciate when their son comes to visit so that's kind of why i don't think at all you're by the end you're supposed to be on oliver's side um you can disagree with me if you want but that's just kind of how i read it i thought i thought wealth was the ultimate antagonist i i like that reading of it i i hadn't thought of it in that way was this a24 who put this out I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. It wasn't A24, but I don't no. know who it was. Um, I do want to say, though, while I'm not a overall fan of Emerald Fennell's writing, I do think the what you touched on, Robert, like making Oliver just come from like a normal middle class family was really good. I, I really enjoyed that part of the script. I, that was like my probably my favorite twist of the whole movie. That was like one of the few things that kind of surprised me about it that I wasn't expecting. Um, I thought that was really good, like a really good play on just our, you know, desire for attention and um, affection and friendship almost by any means necessary, even if it means creating a sob story for yourself just so that you can get people's sympathies because you're awkward socially. Like, I thought that was a really good twist on the character. One thing I don't even know if this is a fair criticism, but the biggest one of the biggest things that didn't work for me was the like almost Oliver like interview setup throughout the movie that it would flash to that it flashed to like five times. Yeah, yeah. it opens on that, right? Yeah, that it opens on, and then it like goes back to like a couple of times in the movie. I didn't like that. That didn't work for me. Um, what about it didn't work? I feel like almost immediately it takes, uh, at least for me, it like almost immediately 
in my mind was like, okay, so uh, this guy did something bad and like we're not mm. supposed to like him. And I get that it's not necessarily supposed to be a suspense whether or not you're liking him or not. I just felt sure. like it would have would have made some of the twists, some of the stuff that's happening in Saltburn mean more if like it almost was like a warning or like a, a hint at what was to come. Uh, and I just thought like during the rest of the movie, when it cut back, it was almost distracting uh, from what was going on because I think like what was happening between all the cast in Saltburn was like so alive and like the best part of the movie that it was just like, it was just distracting and would mess with the tone for me a little bit whenever we would cut back to just uh, um, Ollie with the comb over talking directly into the camera. I, I just didn't, it, that just didn't work for me. I didn't like that part of it, but like I said, that, uh, that was just my take on it. I think they were trying to use that as a kind of narrator device. And I agree. It, it didn't work for me, but a lot of this movie didn't work for me. So <laughs> what's new? I won't argue that point too much because while I did say I love it and I gave it four and a half stars, I acknowledge that there are like issues with it, such as like, when did he decide he was going to do this whole thing? Was it when he realized that someone like Felix went to the same school as him? Um, what was he doing for the 15 years in between the death of uh, the kids and the death of Richard E. Grant when Ro- Rosamund Pike finally meets him in the coffee shop and he's pretend typing on Microsoft Word. So like, why did he wait that whole time? So like, I know that there are gaps here and there, but for me, I just, I don't know. I really enjoyed the tone of the whole thing. I liked the comedy. There's like this uncomfortable comedy and silly stuff. Uh, It's very fun to look at. It creates a great atmosphere. The characters are compelling. So like all of this stuff just worked really well for me. And enough so and i enjoyed the commentary too the stuff the stuff about wealth that i was talking about all this worked well enough for me to kind of uh hand wave some of the more nitpicky stuff that i grant is definitely a problem i will say i did the characters were probably the best part but well like the honestly the family felix's family was the best part yeah for me um but i didn't think farley was written super well I actually, um, he's just kind of there. Yeah. Like, and I feel like he was given like kind of a lot to do. Like he's, he's one of the more interesting the most, parts of the movie in that respect. I think. What'd you say? I think he's one of the more interesting parts of the movie because of that. But I would agree that he's not, he's given something to do on paper. Cause he's supposed to be the LGBTQ plus like, and non-white character as well. Right. Yeah, That's just a lot. And it was kind of broadly written for me. I just didn't yeah. think like it felt a little bit thrown in. It did um, very much for me. Uh, so I didn't love that. I do have to shout out my girl, Carrie Mulligan though. Like my favorite, Pamela. <laughs> favorite actress working right now in movies and uh, not enough of her. Could have used more of her, but she was great in her like 15 minutes of, of screen time and wacky hair. Yeah. That's another thing where the uh, Rosamund Pike's character just kind of, you know, discards her and you're mm-hmm. just like, all right, they're crappy to people who, you know, are lower than them or who they perceive to be as lower than them. 
I will say I think this movie has used Jacob Elordi the best oh, of great. anything so far in his uh, filmography. And I know it's early on. I'm not as – I like Jacob Elordi as an actor, um, but I thought they used him really well in this movie. So I will give him props for that. I don't know, man. I'm a big fan of Kissing Booth 1. I think it's <laughs> excellent usage right there. Let's move on to our wild cards. We got some good discussion on some of these movies on – uh, Saltburn, especially, I enjoy talking about it. Caleb, did you have a wild card you wanted to bring up? I'll shout out. I think it came out this month. Please don't destroy the treasure of Foggy Mountain. <laughs> it it did out come out this right? month. I didn't get to it yet. I've been interested. So go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. Well, um, it's so dumb. <laughs> it's it's just so stupid. So stupid. But um, it's definitely in the vein of the like you know the the group you you've seen them on SNL. They're getting a lot. I, at least in my eyes, they just have a lot of similarities to like the Lonely Island. They're getting some comparisons to that, and uh, that's what this kind of reminded me of. Now, this movie doesn't even come close to touching the masterpiece that is Hot Rod. <laughs> but um, I will say, like this is just like. Uh, a fun type of movie, just like a dumb comedy that you can just throw on. And I'm glad that there's like a new, a new group along with the lonely Island that'll make, that'll be making movies like this. I don't think they're, you know, the lonely Island, um, kind of likes to make fun of masculinity and toxic masculinity in a lot of their stuff. Um, this group is more about the fact that there's no masculinity between any of them. (laughs) Um, so I don't think they have quite as good a grasp on like what kind of comedy they're doing or like the tone of that they want for their movie for their like stuff is like the lonely Island did, but I could definitely see them getting there one day and I'm excited to see what they do next. This movie's super stupid and it's not like I necessarily loved it, but I chuckled several times and it was, it was a lot of fun to just turn on and it's only like a hundred minutes. So it's a nice, easy watch, but I recommend it if you're a fan of dumb, dumb comedies where you don't have to do a lot of thinking. It's a lot of fun. See, I like these guys. I like their YouTube skits and like the stuff I would see on Twitter. Um, I didn't think their stuff on SNL was as funny, but I really enjoyed a lot of their skits. You know, their pre SNL skits like they did a (laughs) I don't know if you saw they did a skit where one of them got a vaccine that wasn't johnson and johnson or pfizer it was doom breaker <laughs> yeah. just about, i thought that was the most hilarious thing i saw in a long time so like yeah. as soon as i saw that i was like these guys got me i i'm in so i'm interested to watch uh please don't destroy the movie especially since you're comparing it to lonely island i'm interested it's definitely a, like a lower grade lonely island sure, i don't want sure. to you know that's comedy royalty in my eyes don't hype it up right. too much but yeah, but it's definitely in the in the same vein. And yeah, like yeah. I said, even if they're making like slightly worse Lonely Island movies, I'm that's like such a guilty pleasure for me. Those type of movies that mm-hmm. I, I'm excited to see what they do next. Dear sister, well, I'm definitely gonna watch this. The we'll podcast. see if Martin Hurley adds my, uh, gets onto my favorite performances of the of the year list. We'll see. Yeah. Um, what is your wild card, Sam? I just got home from seeing Dream Scenario, the Nicolas Cage movie. That movie was fantastic. The general plot is this college professor overnight becomes a sensation around the world because he starts showing up 
in everyone's dreams. Every single person on earth is dreaming about him in some way. Maybe it's tangentially, maybe it's he's directly involved, but he's there. And it's a really interesting tale about fame and what happens to you overnight. Uh, it's a really unique Cage performance, which is saying something considering Nicolas Cage. But he does something that's not really Cage-like in that he's a very low-on-himself kind of guy who's very down on his luck in a way and just trying to find a spot in the world kind of. And this fame that he has suddenly catapulted into is very unique. And I appreciated his performance there. Michael Sarah's in the movie briefly in a kind of a bit part. I don't know the name of the actress who plays his wife, but she does very well. The actresses who plays daughters are interesting. And I would say the, the best sequences are the ones where people are dreaming about him because it's, it's always unique. There's stuff where he's showing up in a nightmare. There's stuff where he's just there in the dream, just walking through, like maybe you're having a very NSFW dream and he just walks through the room <laughs> and just, or maybe or stands about, in the corner or maybe it's about him. There is one where he's in a corner. I will, that one was the most interesting one. And I appreciated cages because he got to do his caginess thing and be wacky, but that mostly is in the dreams. Otherwise he's kind of this down to earth, like loser who all of a sudden he's the sub, he's the most interesting and most popular man on the planet for no reason. And it's exciting to see that. I'm definitely going to check this one out again. It may even crack my top 10 for the year, but it would push out Barbie. And I don't know if I can do that to my wife. So (laughs) Yeah, I actually reviewed Dream Scenario for the site. So if you want to see my full thoughts on that, head over to sifpop.com. Um, I will say my favorite cage bit real quick is when he's scary in his daughter's dream and he's like running down the hall. <laughs> I felt just... so bad. I know it was, I know it's just a kid acting, but I felt so bad for that kid. I was like, if my dad was in one of my nightmares like that, I would just lose it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Cage is excellent in that movie. My wild card, uh, November has been probably my favorite month of the year so far, at least in terms of the movies that we I got to talk about on this roundup. Um, so my wild card is actually a little bit of a letdown compared to the things that we were talking about earlier. But it's The Marsh King's Daughter starring Daisy Ridley and uh, Ben Mendelsohn, which I thought it was solid. Uh, Daisy Ridley's character was raised in the woods by her dad, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who... Uh, it turns out that he was keeping Daisy Ridley and her mother captive and it wasn't a loving family. So skip forward to when she's an adult with kids of her own and all of a sudden her dad is back in town and she has to try to keep her own daughter away from him. Uh, it's a little bit convoluted. It's a little bit all over the place. But Daisy Ridley and Ben Mendelsohn are both great. And like, I think apart from Murder on the Orient Express, this is the first time I've seen Ridley outside of uh, Star Wars. And she's excellent. She's very good. Um, I would like to see more of her. Sometimes I think about dying. I know it's coming out in January now. um, And I'm very much looking forward to that, especially now that I've seen this. So if if for any reason this one is worth seeing, it's just to see that like, hey, Daisy Ridley can be more than just kind of the bland Ray character. Um, 
even though she's already announced to have been going back to the Star Wars well, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm excited. I, guess I can't that. begrudge. <laughs> I, I can't begrudge people for getting money, and I'm sure Star Wars is very lucrative for her. Uh, the movie itself is a little bit overlong and overwrought, but there's a nice contrast between what good parenting looks like and what bad parenting looks like. It's a nice little movie. Watch it for Daisy Ridley. You you know Ben Mendelsohn is good already, so if you just want to see another, you know, above average Ben Mendelsohn performance, you could watch this also. He's in the Caleb Martin category. If if you're yes. sad about Ben Ben Mendelsohn dying in Secret Invasion, spoiler alert, go watch this. I was gonna say something about Caleb Martin dying, and that was that would have been a step too far. But like, <laughs> Amelia Clark got Caleb Martin's shooting abilities. That'd be yeah. very interesting. If he had been monstered, I would not have minded one bit. It's just a few months too late. The person they missed out for Looney to for Space Jam Two being a monster <laughs> was one hundred percent Caleb Martin. Just kidding. It was Joel Embiid. I can't believe they I didn't s- have him in there. I said I was over this, but uh, apparently I'm not. It's bringing back bad memories of Jason Tatum's twisted ankle in the first minute of Game 7. Let's move on. Uh, Caleb, what, what is your favorite movie of 2023 so far? That's our last segment here on these roundups. Uh, I wish I had like a super unique answer, but it's still Oppenheimer. I yeah. just still haven't seen any, anything that tracked a person's life like that while having spectacle and it being a complete cinematic experience um you know i hate to keep bringing it up but oppenheimer's full of caleb martins <laughs> it's full of them there's like 50 of them in this movie it's insane like every i can't scene, handle one yeah like every scene is like somebody that you're like oh my gosh i love them and then they're only in it for five minutes but they're great and yeah. uh I have been a Nolan, I guess, detractor, you could say. I, I've never been the biggest Nolan fan. Something about most of his movies just has not fully connected with me. But um, this one was different. I think this is the best movie by far. I don't think it's particularly close. Um, and uh, no, this one was great. This is uh, still my number one movie of the year. I Yeah, incredible. Sam? Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Oppenheimer is top 10 for me, though. I did get it on Blu-ray. I found it in a Walmart. That's also where I got mine. (laughs) There were a few left when I was there. Whenever I have to go to the pharmacy after I've gotten all my groceries, I just walk past the DVD section. I mean, Mm. I'm not planning to buy anything, but I know I will if I see something worth it. And I was like, Oppenheimer on Blu-ray? Yes, please. It's mine. Yes. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for me. It's it's still just a piece of art to look at. It's gorgeous. Such an astounding cast full, just absolutely chalked to the brim of Caleb Martin's everywhere you look. And then oh it's like you have a big three performance in there with LeBron, Wade, and Bosch. It's just terrific. Can't with- we at least call it Pierce, Allen, and Garnett for my sake? <laughs> No, uh, they yeah. only won one ring. No, they only won one ring, and they beat a Lakers team that had only Injuries. played 30 games. Pau Gasol's better than Kevin Garnett. All right, all right. My favorite movie of the year. Uh, I've been saying Asteroid City for months now, but uh, it's honestly been bouncing back and forth between that and Oppenheimer. I've seen them each three times now. I've seen Oppenheimer more recently, so I'm going to have to say Oppenheimer right now at the moment is my number one movie of the year. 
switching it up for those who've been loyal listeners hearing me say Asteroid City for the last six months. But man, Oppenheimer, I, I, I talked about it in the July episode and like everything Caleb just said, it's astounding. It's a masterpiece. It, I will like, say I picked this month to talk about the breakdown because I thought my favorite movie of the year, Dune 2, was coming out at the beginning of this oh. month. And that didn't happen. And this month was still, in my opinion, the best month of the year for movies. Just imagine if Dune had come out this month. It would have been... My name is Paul Wadib Caleb Martin Atreides. Oh, no, no, he's not Caleb Martin. He's Caleb Jason Martin, Tatum. This, this is becoming a thing. He's Jimmy Butler. He's <laughs> seen it I shouldn't have brought <laughs> Who does anyway Oppenheimer is great <laughs> yep. I feel like Oppenheimer uh, is more of a 2018 Cavs with like a LeBron in the middle and then a bunch of like George Hill Tristan Thompson figures around him honestly I I can stand that that comparison that's fine that one didn't hurt me as bad or maybe a 2011 um, Bulls with Derrick Rose right in the middle sure too soon yeah. it'll always be too soon don't bring up Look, man, they put prime LeBron on a 21-year-old. Something bad was going to happen defensively. I'm sorry. It just... Quick reminder that Sif Pop Writer's Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media. If you are interested in writing for SifPop.com like the three of us, or if you want to get in contact with us, then email us at writersroom at SifPop.com. You can follow me on Letterboxd at Robert's Thoughts. Sam, where can people follow you if they want? You can follow me on the social media site formerly known as Twitter. My handle there is Samberger9296 and my letterboxed is CinematicSam623. I picked those numbers because those are LeBron's two numbers. Yes, I said it. And At least it's not Caleb Martin. And then my, I actually got a, my serialized account, which is TV for letter, which is letterbox for TV is just Samberger. Apparently I'm the first one to use that there. So Nice. Caleb? Where can people find you? Yeah, you can follow me on X at uh, RealCalebW. I basically just only tweet about movies and uh, basketball at this point. And then um, you can follow me on Letterboxd at K.A. Walters. Nice. Um, like I said, follow me on Letterboxd. And you can join me next month as I talk with sip-hop writers Heath and Luke to discuss some of the biggest movies of December, which, who knows, just may rival November in terms of the quality. Until then, though. We have to get back to the writer's room.